Festival season is over! And now we're free! Free to do what we want to do! We want to be free to just play a game sometime or catch up on The Walking Dead without getting hassled by the man! And we want to finally record this long overdue episode of Digital Noise! I just want the Dayquil. Can you pass that over? Sorry, just chugged the last of it. You want this beer? <sighs> yes. out there in the digiverse it's time for another scintillating episode of digital noise right here on oneofus.net this is the blu-ray dvd review podcast that is always a chapter ahead <laughs> yes and sometimes we're so far ahead that we actually have to skip a week in order to get both behind ahead and behind at the same time it's a chapter skip it's it's like that movie looper look into it yes entirely <laughs> i'm your host brian salisbury no relation and joining me as ever is my stupendous co-host and friend mr christopher lawrence cox hey it's really great to be here and i want to wish you a happy belated birthday sir thank you for that with the extra year and the uh newly shorn noggin hell you were one of the few guys who actually did actually make a point of celebrating my birthday with me this year so well you know he it, forced me into it yeah he, he i like, did twisted my arm and said oh you're coming out for beer. Yeah. I just, it, I don't understand not doing anything on your birthday. It just made me sad. So, well, you know, I was enjoying getting caught up on TV. Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. You must party. I want to remind everyone that Digital Noise, just like all of our content here on oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. All you got to do is search for one of us in the podcast section. While you're there, if you want to leave a five star review and, uh, or a five-star rating and leave a review, that would be really awesome. We would appreciate that. Also, something we would appreciate is becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Uh, we are in the process of finalizing our incentives for our subscribers, and that will, of course, grandfather in anyone who has been pledging just of their own, you know, good nature and, and of their uh, of their own goodwill. And we, we really appreciate that. You guys will be grandfathered into the incentives as well. Uh, that's what helps us keep the lights on here at oneofus.net. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, D-I-G-I NoiseCast. And oneofus.net is on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. I think that's all the housekeeping stuff. That's a lot of information in a very short period of time. That's what we do. <laughs> hey, it's time to reach out to the Inner Sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. got mail the letterbox thank you torgo and our first question comes from the man with no name and by that i mean uh it is an asian listener who's uh, even his facebook handle is something i can't pronounce or read sorry it, it looks like some galaga symbols perhaps some or... characters from another language that we don't understand because we were born in america yes <laughs> well for better or for worse that they don't teach us anything but english that's so. true <laughs> Who would you guys cast for a buddy cop movie? He says that his pick, or her pick, I'm, I'm not really sure, would be Nicolas Cage and Jesse Eisenberg. That's a odd combination. That's a super odd combination. I, I can see it. I can see what he's talking about, like yeah. what, he, what he has in his head there, but I feel that would get irritating really fast. Quite possibly. Quite <laughs> possibly. So, so Chris, who would your picks be for... Mr. T and Kit Terry Crews. Mi wow. How could you tell them apart? <laughs> yeah, they're going to be like, one's going to be the dad, and the other's going to be... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that quite yeah. a bit. Uh, I guess for me, it would have to be, well, Robert Forrester for sure. 
because I've always wanted to see him in a buddy cop movie. And I want to say Fred the Hammer Williamson, although they they did kind of work together on Vigilante, so that's not quite thinking enough outside the box. So I'm going to go with Robert Forrester and and Scott Atkins. Okay, sure, why not? Robert Forrester is the old veteran who's got all of the the jabs and the and the quips and and Scott Atkins is the is the rookie who knows martial arts. I think that would be an incredible buddy cop movie. <laughs> and buddy cop movies by the way are uh, an excellent subgenre of film that you should all check out. Things like Freebie and the Bean or Bustin or uh, there's a really great one I love called Running Scared, not the Paul Walker movie. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, Billy Crystal and uh, Gregory Hines. Yeah, great movie. So fun. Absolutely. By the makers of Beverly Hills Cop. No, it was by the, the makers of Sudden Death. And, I thought it was the same writer. Oh, it may have been the same writer. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the director is John Hyams or, oh, okay. or Peter Hyams. Whichever one's the dad of that group. The guy who's now doing uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme films. No, that's his son. That's oh. a, that's just, This is where we're getting confused. One okay. of the Hyams, is, I think Peter Hyams is the one that did like, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent. It's very confused. They're, Let's just say the ultimate buddy cop movie is uh, Monkey and uh, Ripley together. Yes, yeah. I agree. Your dog and my cat together I, fighting I, crime. I agree with that entirely. And what? otherwise, A dog and a cat riding together in a car? Mass hysteria. <laughs> That's just crazy talk. From one, we all know dogs who'd never pass the police entry exam. Even though there are actual police dogs and not police cats. That's all graft. <laughs> That's neither high nor there. Um, oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, see that how I brought that back? Our next question comes from Zach Chapman. Have you ever offended an interviewee or had an interview go terribly south? Yes, I have. See, I, I actually have not. Ha- I've had interviewees that were just boring. I was like, okay... But never really had one go real south. But I know you've done a lot more interviews than me, and I yeah. had to, I had to know. Yeah, well, it was funny because it was it's one of those situations where I asked a completely harmless question, and the the person I was interviewing just took it the complete wrong way. And what made it so sad is it was somebody I really admire. I was interviewing Pam Greer, mm. and I was talking about you know as I don't, if you guys have listened to me babble on the internet for you know any period of time, you probably know I'm a huge fan of black exploitation. I love those movies, movies like Coffee and, and Truck Turner and JD's Revenge and uh, Shaft. And- Shaft, yeah, absolutely. I love those movies. Uh, Black Caesar. I mean, they're just they're incredible films, and I don't enjoy them with any like note of irony or, or or you know. I mean, I know they're a form of exploitation, but I've always admired them because I like the fact that so many fantastic talent was able to get their start in the genre that maybe at the time wouldn't have had that opportunity. But I do recognize that the fact that it's called black exploitation. It was a very controversial thing because there was a whole school of thought that these movies just exploit African American audiences. They're just trying to to make money off African American audiences. Same way that people accuse Tyler Perry films of doing today, except right. uh, those old black exploitation films were actually good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I asked her um, what she thought of the controversy of black exploitation, and what I was referring to, and what I thought was pretty obvious, I was referring to is the long-standing belief that that genre existed to basically fleece money from African-American audiences. I don't necessarily hold that belief myself, but it is, it is you know, critics and scholars for ages have talked about it. And she apparently thought the controversy I was talking about was basically, like, black people being heroes. Really? Yeah, and she was like, Where I don't see... Why is that a controversy? I don't know. She was like, I don't see what's so controversial just because black people were winning. And I was like, no, that's not at all what I meant. And it just... 
I don't know. Like, it, it, we moved on to the next question. We finished the interview fine, but just from that point forward, I was like, I don't. There think, was a hostile. I just didn't there. think we were on the same page at that point. I was like, I don't really know what else I can get from this interview because I feel like you now think that I'm some kind of like racist. racist. It's like no, that's not the controversy I'm referring to. Is actually the long-standing belief that you were being exploited. Like that was it. Like it wasn't that. I thought black people shouldn't be winning in movies. Like, I don't yeah, know that's a really what odd, idiot thinks that. But. Well, really odd place to go with that to assume, was that a, is that a controversy from anyone? I, I don't know. Maybe it was at the time from some racist circles, but certainly nobody said that for a really, really long time. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was a time when things kind of got away from me. And I was really disappointed because I was really excited for that interview. Although I will say that. In the, in the, in my oeuvre of interviews, if that's even the right word, like I think it was balanced out by the time that I got tricked into doing a quote unquote round table with Joss Whedon, where there were actually like 30 people in the room. I was like, this is a press conference. This is not a round table. Right. And I was still able to muscle my way into not only getting a couple questions answered, but having Joss Whedon himself, uh, call me clever. Huh. And I was like, Fuck yeah, universe. You're just going to tattoo that on your forehead. I will. I will indeed. I don't know. I think the only time I ever really talked to a celebrity and went horribly wrong was when I was drunk at a at a bachelor party and I went to the guy, the bassist from The Darkness, and referred to his band as a joke band, and he tried to punch me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm The Darkness sorry. is such a huge band now that... It, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You're a joke band. I believe in a thing called hubris. Anyway. Have you seen the music video for that? Yeah, no kidding. Just saying. Thank you for your questions, guys. We're going to slam slam close. <laughs> Wait, let's see. Slam shut. Shut with an H, the letterbox, <laughs> and slide it back under the bed. Why do you always be talking about woman like that stuff shoved in our ma- a mailbox? I don't know, man. I don't know what happened, and I didn't even notice it until the next day. I was like, oh, I re- that was a really horrible typo. That's it's the sp- worst kind of slut shaming. I'm right? just saying. Not my intention. You're supposed to kill them and then put them in a box. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> just Thank ask Bo. Thank you for that tutorial. <laughs> but now it's time to commence with the reviews. And reminding you, just like always, everything we talk about here, there will be an image <laughs> below that will take you directly to Amazon. Even if you don't buy the item that we are featuring, as long as you get to Amazon via our links, we get a prof- we get a cut of the profit of whatever you buy, and that's a really huge uh, source of income for us. So we really appreciate appreciate you guys doing that. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we're going to start this week with The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. (laughs) Wow, you sound really excited. Catching Fire. You know, I liked the first Hunger Games. I liked it even quite a bit. But I had read the books first, and I was very aware of the fact that the first movie was missing a lot of rather important and poignant emotional beats along the way that made its relationships actually have some sort of relevance you know, that, that is just missing from the film, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, and I remember being like, as much as I liked, you know, the casting all the way through and I liked watching the games play out, there's a lot of stuff I really liked. I still felt, it just felt incomplete. Like some, like it was more like a only going to have any emotional relevance if you've read the book. Catching Fire, the sequel, actually picks up right from the point of saying, okay, it's time we fix all that. And in the first 10 minutes, manages to put in all the emotional stuff that the original movie left out pretty much completely. It fixes everything that was wrong with the first movie right there from the start. And in fact, goes on to become, in my opinion, just a better movie all across the board. I would have to agree with that. I actually didn't care so much for uh, the first movie. And I think part of it is what you were saying. And the other thing was that I thought it was a little... And maybe this just comes from me being a horrophile, but I thought it was a little lame that the producers of the movie didn't trust the young audiences as much as the writer of the book did in terms of the violence. I felt like 
when you when you really neuter the the violence that happens in these in this movie or in the first movie, you don't get a sense of the stakes. You don't get an adequate sense of of what's happening in the world that these kids are living in. And there's not a really good way to present that argument without sounding like what I'm really saying is I just wish kids had been killed more brutally, <laughs> which is not it. It's 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 a matter of stakes. And I felt like something this one did better was to make things severe enough that I I really feared for everyone, not just Katniss. Like it 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 kind of I don't know. It made for a more dramatic setting for everyone. Well, there's a higher level of, of moral complexity going on sure. here as well, because Katniss, who at this point is I'm played by Jennifer Lawrence, of course, uh, at this point is I mean, she knows how to be a killer. She's damn good at it. And she is ready to go in there and just be the last surviving person almost. And she's being informed, like, look, that's exactly what they want you to do. What you have to do is go in there and find allies who feel the same way you do. That This is all bullshit. Which it is, because they're is. being forced into by the government all the winners of previous Hunger Games to get together and fight each other. And you have to do your best to try not to kill someone unless you have no choice at all in the matter. Otherwise, they're going to sell you as just part of the program to, to the audiences. Everything that you stand for, that you gained, that you became a symbol for to the people who are starving in all these different districts will be lost if they see you being the hunter. Right. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, she wants to defend her friends and the still kind of a, a pussy pita. <laughs> that poor guy. I think Josh. I ordered one of those at a, uh, at a sandwich place one time. The guy, poor, poor guy, Josh Hutchison. He's like one of the first men in a major theatrical release that has to now play the role that almost every woman has played in every action movie since the beginning of time. It's true. <laughs> How the tables have turned. How they have. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but I will say I was... Just struck. I forgot that Philip Seymour Hoffman had a role in here, and it just smacked me in the face when he appears on it. In a role that would have been obviously very important in the third film. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do now. Well, as far as I understand it, they a lot of what they were shooting with him was already done. Yeah. So I think that they'll they'll be okay. But yeah, it's you know he, I really love his character in this. I really love sort of the. It's it's like being. Apparently his job is a lot like being a commander on the Death Star. People keep dying in front of you so you get that job. It's like, oh, the last guy, we weren't happy with him, so we killed him. Yeah. So now it's your job. Like, I don't know why people keep taking these jobs. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I really liked him in this. I really, I really thought the cast overall came together in a more significant way than they did in the first one. And I'll say this as well. Uh, Liam Hemsworth was just kind of forgettable in the first one. And here he had a lot more going on as, sure. as, as the, the other point in the Katniss love triangle. Uh, Woody Harrelson was one of the more interesting things about the first one. He continues along here, but he brings along for the ride with them Elizabeth Banks' roles, Effie Trinket, Trinket, who was very one-dimensional in the first one. And here they actually give her a soul. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> she know? was literally a, a coat rack in the first one. It's like, let's just put pretty clothes on her. That's all we need to do. Uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed this. I think it, it just it fine-tunes and fixes everything that didn't quite work with the first one, advances the story in a good way, and ends in a very Empire Strikes Back sort of sense. Very you know? much so. so. So just a warning for for those people, and I know there are always those people who get frustrated. They're like, what? There's no real ending to this. What the fuck? I hate that. It's like, yeah, you knew it was a book trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a point in any series like that that the middle one is going to be a cliffhanger. I'm just Remember saying. how Two Towers ended? Yeah. Or hell, remember how Fellowship of the Ring ended? <laughs> yeah. 
Come on, guys. You should be used to this by now. Yeah, even Return of the King. I mean, seriously, when are we going to see what happens on the other shores? I'm just curious. No, I don't Is want 15 just... more endings and six more Hobbit movies. Just no, I'm fine. Gay Hobbit sex all the time? And that, that would be fine, but I don't need to see, you know, six happy endings of that. Like, <laughs> that's just, we, we've got the story. We're good. Thanks, Wait, It's Peter not a Jake. massage parlor, Brian. Is it not? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Apparently, I misunderstood what a Hobbit hole was. So. Now, when I looked at this, uh, this set for Catching Fire, I was like, why is there barely any extras on this? Because you just look like, oh, there's a sneak peek at Divergent, the latest film trying to grab the thunder of YA. Uh, There's audio commentary with the director and producer. Uh, Really? That's it? But then I was like, oh, well, there is a making of on here. Holy shit, it's two and a half hours long. It's longer than the damn movie. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) So uh, if you were worried about there not being features, they just did the weird thing lately, which is to not... Most people, they do a long documentary, but it's all split up in featurettes. It's just one long-ass documentary. They took it all and they just put it in one. So if you're a fan, they do, in fact, do a a proper job of giving you behind-the-scenes stuff. It's just you got to watch a whole other movie to see see it <laughs> <laughs> true story well from a film based on a book to a <coughs> movie a film about people who steal books i guess the book thief oh i thought it was 12 years a slave I'm oh no, no 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 not books about people who steal people oh okay <laughs> uh this was the almost ran except not quite of holocaust we're gonna get the oscar goddammit films for 2013 uh based on a novel the same name it it did get nominated for the musical score. <laughs> yeah, but this and along with The Boy with the Striped Pajamas are starting to prove that you can't just make a Holocaust movie and win Oscars. Although I will say I thought this was much better than that was. Oh, I'm not I'm not commenting on the quality at all. I'm just yeah. saying that, that I think right. that trend is starting to... It's not an automatic... Yeah, you, sometimes you can't go full retard. It, they yes, entirely. <laughs> uh, although this wasn't, strictly speaking, a Holocaust film. It was a movie that takes place around uh, with, a, with a non-Jewish person uh, who was... In Germany during, you know, the, the rise of Nazi Germany when they were coming in and taking out all the Jews, just a young girl, uh, who basically had been taken away from her mother because she couldn't afford to take care of her anymore and given to two parents, played charmingly by Jeffrey Rush, who is just the best thing about this movie, absolutely. And Emily Watson, who's more of a sort of like a stern taskmaster that slowly melts, heart melts as the movie goes along. But she forms a strong relationship with her adoptive father, Jeffrey Rush, when he basically introduces her to the joy of reading and reading books and becomes kind of, comes kind of a game for, for them. The title, it's an odd title because ultimately, like, the act of her stealing the books is like this minor act of of rebellion, I guess, against the Germans that has is a symbol in and of itself, but it's not even the biggest symbol in the film. You know, like she steals a book from a book burning at one point because she just wants to read every book she can get her hands on. For her, it doesn't really mean much more than that at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where the title comes from anyway. But as it goes on, they end up housing and hiding a a young Jewish boy that she has, you know, forms a very strong friendship for. Uh, There's lots of coming of age type stuff. It's the Germans and the, the threat of the, you know, the Nazis getting worse and worse is always dancing around the outside, but that's just it. It's always just dancing around the outside. And the film never really fully commits to any one thing. Okay. So it's, it's a little, uh, 
right between the bindings kind of a thing. <laughs> well, that would be everything in a book, to be fair. That's true. <laughs> That's I don't know exactly how books work, but I'm willing to learn. But, you know, I mean, it, it is interesting to see a film that takes place during this that is not set in a concentration camp or what have you, or, or uh, during the, you know, Kristallnacht or something like that. It's actually the people who were there watching all this going on around them and weren't happy about it, but didn't really know what to do either. They were powerless. Uh, and I guess maybe that took away from some of the interest. Some people were like, okay, well, yes, there were a lot of people who were witness to World War II, and these are some of them. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, would you say it's a good movie? I mean, it's it's a good movie. It's just not a great movie. It's, mm. It does have, in fact, a really good score. It does have really good performances. The story's just kind of, like I said, it just never fully commits to any one thing, and it never really fully emotionally grabs you until really very near the the very very end. That's sort of a more of a uh, ending of six feet under t- uh, the TV series type of end, huh. you know. And this is what happened to that person, and this is what happened to that person, and this is how they died, and this is how they died. You're like, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. Uh, I. I like this movie, didn't love it. Um, I will say, like, so that little girl, I would, I, uh, I, what is her name? Sophie Nais, uh, something like that. Nelise. You got me, man. Uh, she was in Monsieur Lazar. Okay. Uh, I, I don't, did you see that one? Uh, no, but I remember that was, wasn't that one of the ones nominated? Oh, yeah, I did see that one. That was very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a French <laughs> one nominated for best foreign uh, language film. It's just been a while. Uh, yeah. And you're, I have a feeling you're going to see more of her. She was just so good in this movie. And she goes from playing like an eight year old to playing like a 19 year old. And they filmed it over the space of like a year. And wow. it's completely convincing with both. You're like, how did they even do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, worth a look. You'll see and you'll go, okay, I see why this was not good enough to compete seriously against the other ones, but there's still a lot to like here, a lot to a lot to find charming. There's about a 31-minute documentary behind the scenes and then a few deleted scenes. That's about it for extras, but that'll be enough. It's a long movie as it is, and yeah, worth a look. If it sounds like it's the sort of thing you like, you will. You just won't remember it for the rest of your life, that's all. So why not see it? Yeah. Not see it. Not see. Not see. <laughs> uh, Moving on from there, we're going to talk about Venture Brothers Season 5. Uh, now there's something to get excited about. Woo! Do you keep up with the Venture Brothers, Brian Salisbury? You know, I don't keep up with it, but I jumped in in this season. I don't know I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to watch Season 5. And I actually thought it was pretty accessible. Well, that's the thing, is the main storyline of the Venture Brothers kind of wrapped up with Season 4. Because the original plan for this Ameri- uh, animated TV series on Adult Swim was for that to be the ending, uh, at least as far as the creators, James Urbaniak and uh, uh, Doc Hammer, were concerned. They're like, look, these take a while to do because they're really well animated and they're extremely well written. Yeah. Uh, and you could see why they had written themselves like the last two seasons, three and four, were very convoluted plot. You could not really just drop in into those seasons without having watched stuff before it. With four more or less wrapping it up, five starts over again with a very fresh-faced and bushy-tailed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, taking stuff where, okay, this is where these characters are now, but not so tied into previous things that you're going to get lost the way it used to be. So it actually is a good jumping-in point if you've always meant to start this series. And boy, is it as funny as anything else they've ever done. I really liked it. In fact, I, my favorite episode of all of them was the second one, Venture, Venture Libre, which was about this... Uh, they're, they're tracking down, uh, Venturestein, which is a creation of Dr. Ventures and come to find out he has started a colony for 
the experiments of a lot of mad scientists in South America, which he finds out that South America is a very popular spot for mad scientist laboratories. So he basically like rallies all these creations and some of them are actually from various movies. Yeah. You even see the human centipede, like yeah, <laughs> like and then there's the, the head that wouldn't die. And like a yeah. lot of really like B cinema classics, uh, monsters are, are showing up in the Island to be part of R, which I can't remember what the acronym is, but it's, it's basically, that's the name of the, the organization he's created. One of my favorites is uh, Gary, who used to be number 29, I think. I can't remember. One of uh, the Monarch's henchmen. Oh, uh, number 21. 21, yeah. yeah. He has since abdicated that, and he joined a organization that, that Brock Sampson would belong to for a little while called Sphinx, which was a sort of a soft... Uh, you know, a side project of the OSI. But since, turns out that was all bullshit. I don't even remember exactly what happened, but everybody else left and went back to OSI. And he's like this kind of, kind of pathetic schlub Gary who has dreams of grandeur. He's decided he wants to be a hero now and is trying to build Sphinx back up into something that was great. So he has auditions for people, only it turns out they're the original members of Sphinx when they were a villainous group, which turns out to basically be the bad guys from G.I. Joe, just with an Egyptian theme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is such a funny episode. Definitely. Oh my God. But there's really not a bad thing in this entire set. I had so much fun. I'm just, it's been three years since there's been a new Venture Brothers season. It's how long it took them to do this. And thank God the next one is actually coming out at the end of this year. So well, we want to wait anywhere near as long. Well, especially since this is uh, only eight episodes long, I think it's like, yeah, now I'm ready for more. Eight episodes plus two very cool bonuses. For one, a very Venture Halloween special is on here, which is a full-length episode, which is actually probably best watched at the start of all this, because they start referencing the revelations that uh, Hank and Dean get uh, about them being actually clones. That actually, that revelation happens in a very venture Halloween and they start referencing the reaction to it in the first couple episodes of the season. So I'm presuming that actually came out first. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. And then there's another called From the Ladle to the Grave, the Shallow Gravy Story, which <laughs> is the, the, the weird little band, terrible band project starring the robot and, uh, oh, is it, it's Hank. It's Hank, isn't it? Yeah, no, 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 no. Dean's the blonde one. No, Hank's the blonde. Hank's the blonde one. Yeah. Okay, I always get confused. I've watched the show so many fucking times. Uh, Hank, and then there, as it turns out, a half brother <laughs> who he's been hanging out with, and it's like a, a behind the music story of their band, which is actually pretty funny, and I had never seen before. Lots of good stuff here. Like I said, not as much in the way of extra features as some of the other seasons go, but those two bonus episodes right there alone um, make it worth it. As well as, like I said, just the fact that this is just high, high quality, high funny stuff. The one thing I note is that every season tends to push its focus more onto different characters as who they really are like the... You know, the, the people who have the most episodes about them. Mm -hmm. And this season is definitely Hank and Dean. Yeah. Like, they have... The Venture Brothers themselves are finally the forefront of the show. Yeah, and I like that they've got, like, the the melancholy Dean. Like, the Dean who's in his, his teen years and is, like black hair and well and for the first time rebellious. they've ever been able to grow up into puberty they're finally entering puberty they've always died and come back as you know their clones have been rejuvenated so they keep restarting yeah this is the first time they actually are like yeah learning what it's like to chase girls and feel angsty and get zits yeah <laughs> and peach fuzz yeah definitely which one, which one's peach fuzz uh no peach fuzz is Never mind. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that falls on uh, my highly, highly recommended list. And mine, too, despite the fact that I am woefully ignorant of the rest of the run of Venture Brothers, I thought this was, was a really great, uh, I guess, appetizer. Not only that, but 
seeing more and more how they're just ripping on all of the Saturday morning cartoons from the from the old days, not just Johnny Quest, but like you know, like you said, GI Joe was one of them for sure. And- oh, they just yeah, sh- like attack everything and and in a very loving sort of way, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, so good for sure. And this is actually my pick of the week. Oh, right on. Yeah, uh, we're gonna move on from there to Doctor Who: The Time of the Doctor. The time. There's a time to say goodbye, and this is what that time is for Matt Smith, who finally is, in fact, has given his last role, at least until they do another one of those crossover Doctor episodes, uh, as the Doctor. It is the 800th episode of Doctor Who that's that's come out. That's Jesus just fucking Christ. Ridiculous. Um, written by Stephen Moffat, who is the showrunner, and it is it's really an ambitious attempt to tie up all of the loose plot threads in the entire Matt Smith run, going back to the crack of time, why the we why uh the weeping angels are there, why uh what the silence are and what their purpose is, um just uh, just all across the board to tie it up in one neat bow, and it technically works. It's just that it's so much stuff going on that you kind of have to watch this episode more than once just to be completely clear on everything that it did. Uh, and and maybe a little too dense to the point where you're like, hey, I just kind of want to feel emotion about the Doctor going away and it being his last episode. With Tennant, they did the previous Doctor. They did such a wonderful job where he actually does is the first Doctor that does not want to go. He's mm-hmm. like, no, I like this body. I don't want to go. I don't want to leave. <laughs> and he's actually genuinely upset. This is more of a peaceful type of thing where it's like, and and you'll see you see why. I mean. This is one of the first times with the Doctor they've really done a thing where it's like, there's huge portions of his story you just did not see. I mean, it's established at one point that before this episode even begins, he's been running around in this body for like 500 years. You know, just hopping around time and space. (laughs) He may have the same companion, but it might be, for them, it may be the next day they see him. For him, it was 150 years. (laughs) You know, uh and it all, it does an interesting thing too. It's also a Christmas episode where he ends up getting trapped on a planet called Christmas that is in fact tied into, as we've seen before, a previous place where we find out that is the doctor's last resting place. We know that, uh, because of previous episodes that this is not, he does not in fact have one more regeneration. This is supposed to be his last regeneration, which means after this, it's it. And basically every villain in the universe has shown up to watch him on this planet and try and kill him. I guess for their own benefit, uh, before he dies of old age. <laughs> well, that, that would be helpful. Uh, and, and it is a good episode. It's just after the last, uh, the last one, which was, I believe that, uh, the day of the doctor, which was magnificent. The big crossover episode with David Tennant and John right, right, Hurt right. and the first appearance of Peter Capaldi, who will be the new one. It was a little bit of a letdown, but still, like I said, I think they were just trying to do too much. It still is a pretty damn good episode, all, all things considered, and a and nice wrap-up for Matt Smith. Uh, now, for extra features, they actually did a pretty good job as well in here of throwing in uh, three uh, features. One was a 13-minute look specifically behind, behind the scenes in the making of this. There's one that's a 45-minute farewell to Matt Smith. Which is really nice where they take a look at everyone who worked with them and every, you know, from him where they get kind of emotional about the whole thing. And it's nice to watch. Uh, and then there's a Tales from the TARDIS, which is a running series they've been going that is a little documentary series about aspects of the show. And this is a, uh, 
retrospective 50th anniversary episode that looks into the whole history of the doctor and gets very just specific about things along the way. There's nice little tidbits of information and trivia I'd never seen before. Cool interviews with various still living folks who played them. Uh, so they really make this, this set worth your time. Right on. Well, moving on from there, uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, but let's talk for hours. No, let's talk about hours. <laughs> well, there's some of us don't have any time left, and that's the star of this film, yeah, Paul Walker. Yeah. What a shame, because this is arguably his strongest acting performance yet, and it came out after he had already passed away. Well, yeah, it's it's one of the only opportunities I think he's ever been given to, one, carry a movie, and two, be given, you know... Uh, sufficient like dramatic meat to chew on, and I feel like with this story, um, <coughs> they just they just give him a better uh, a better playing field. Well, they really do, and this is a one man show almost all the way. There are a few other characters that pop up in this, but it is completely up to Paul Walker as to whether this film uh, works or fails. And right. generally speaking, it really worked for me. Yeah, it worked for me as well. This is actually a pretty exciting thriller that takes place during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, whereas Paul Walker's, his wife is pregnant. They're in a hospital. The hurricane is ramping up outside. No one thinks it's going to be as bad as it ended up being at that point. But he's, you know, he, he's just, he's there to take care of his wife who he loves the shit out of his first daughter. Uh, and unfortunately his wife dies in childbirth and his daughter has to go on a ventilator where they're told, look, she's going to be fine. She just needs to be on this for about 48 hours and, and then she'll breathe on her own. So it's nothing to worry about right now. It's just. She just needs to be watched. She's staying with her when the hurricane does what Hurricane Katrina, as we know, does. Starts ripping shit apart. And he is basically left the only guy in the hospital who has to keep cranking a homemade battery every three minutes or the ventilator is going to go off. Right. For like two days. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's still got to run and try and grab food and find – take advantage of like – how am I going to get somebody to even know we're here? This could last for weeks, you know? Yeah, it's it's one of those sort of claustrophobic movies where he is trapped – um, I mean, more accurately to the to the entire hospital, he's trapped. Really, he's trapped in this room. He's he's almost handcuffed to this this crank that he has to keep turning every every three minutes. You know, lest the the ventilator go out. And that's it's really a movie about you know what it means to be a father and and what it means to you know do everything you possibly can for your offspring. And and I felt like you know they that Paul Walker was in the in the quietest of moments i thought is when he he shined the most i mean that's not to say that in a movie where he's in a hospital by himself there aren't a lot of quiet moments but there are there are levels of quietness uh, within within the quiet movie and i think in in the quietest of moments is when he really shines you're right he actually uh, really i mean i all right so we had seen um uh, the other Paul Walker uh, film that we're seeing, which is, in fact, the other film called Running Scared, which I actually yes. really like quite a bit mm -hmm. as well, although it's nothing like the original buddy cop movie Running no, Scared you no, were no, talking no. about. Not related. Uh, so I was like, wow, he actually can act. How come he doesn't do that more often in other films? Well, to be fair, he's in The Fast and the Furious or the other films. But uh, in this one, he really – he's the first time you really see – I don't know, man. This guy might have something. He might have really, he's been paying attention and learning because you really feel for this guy and he has some genuine moments that your heart completely breaks apart for him on screen. Yeah. I mean, it's a good performance and it's a solid thriller setup. You will, if you're, have any humanness left in you at all, <laughs> you will be on the edge of your seat to some extent during parts of this, even though it's such a simple story. Mm -hmm. And just goes to show sometimes the simpler the story, the more effective a thriller can really be. Sure. Sure. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a lot of the fat has been trimmed out of this movie. There's not, 
it is, man, it is really lean. This is a really lean story, but I, I think that all involved and not just Walker, but like, I think there's some great cinematography. And I think even the story composition where there are some moments of flashback that, and only just enough flashback to give you the necessary nuance to understand what Walker is doing in his performance. So you'd say it's a perfect storm of elements. I, I would say that, yeah. but then I, w- I would be a horrible person. That would be, yeah. And then you would not be on the edge of your seat. Right. So. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. I would be kicked out of the theater. <laughs> But yes, that is ours. Highly recommended. And from there, we're going to move on to The Agony and the Ecstasy, which sounds like a porn. I was going to say, I thought we weren't going to talk about my porn collection. <laughs> you promised you would never say anything, Brian. Whoops. That was private. <laughs> now, The Agony and the Ecstasy is actually a classic uh, 1965 film directed by Carol Reed and starring Charlton Heston as Michelangelo. I was about to say, get this, Michelangelo. <laughs> Uh, you know, it has a, a certain, like, like at first you get this feeling it's going to be more of like a, like a biblical type thing. And you can't help them. I mean, it all takes place pretty much in the Vatican. Uh, Rex Harrison, uh, who will always be the My Fair Lady guy to me, but, sure. uh, is playing Pope Julius II, who is the Pope who, in fact, commissioned Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel, uh, a undertaking taking that took like four or five years when it was only supposed to take like six months originally. And, uh, of course, we all know that it kind of paid off in spades. But the whole time the church is being besieged, he was known as like the battle pope. Battle pope! Because he was like a badass and would go out himself with sword and fucking armor and kick the shit Why out of Why has there not been a Saturday morning cartoon called Battle Pope? There is a comic book series called Battle Pope. On it. But it has I'm nothing reading. to do with Pope Julius. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a good comic though. Uh, and Michelangelo and Pope Julius really did not get along. Michelangelo was a bit of an egotist, big shocker, at least in this really? portrayal of him. He anyway. seemed like such a, such a humble guy. And Julius just kept asking him every day. It's like, how much longer is this going to take? <laughs> you know, yeah. he would say, when is it going to be done? And Michelangelo would say, when it's finished. <laughs> and, <laughs> Whenever I feel like it. And this movie actually does a great job of both setting up. I mean, there's a good set, like 10 minutes at the beginning of this. It's just sort of a retrospective at the best, the highlights of Michelangelo's work, which is kind of cool. Gives you an idea of why this guy was as highly respected as he was, why he was important in art history, mm-hmm. uh, why the, the Sistine Chapel in and of itself was con- and still is considered to be the maybe the biggest turning point in Western art there ever was. You know, his his work on anatomy and what have you and stuff I don't even understand because I'm not an art history major. <laughs> <laughs> Influenced everybody afterwards in a major way. But it's this fiery, tempestuous relationship between the uh, the two of them that's really what makes this movie as fun as it is. And that being said, it even gets to be where it teaches you something you don't expect it to about like it, it ultimately it's about art versus commerce and the point in which the two have to meet, you know? Yeah. And it's actually quite a fascinating lesson as both characters learn something from each other by the end of this movie and become considerably more humble uh, in their life and their expectations afterwards. And I found myself completely charmed by this. This is, I, I will go back and watch this again and relatively soon. I just thought it was beautiful. They, I can't believe they recreated the Sistine Chapel for this. They did not use the actual Sistine Chapel. It's like, why do you bet? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so shouldn't the guy who made the imitation Sistine Chapel get some credit somewhere along the line historically? Right. You I think. Don't, I don't know. But, uh, either way, really enjoyable. I think that, um, 
it's it's not like action packed. It's not like a bunch of fighting or anything like that. But people who care anything about art and all, this is not like I said. It's not a religious film. And I th- was afraid at first it was going to be a like I said. Charlton Heston's been known in being a few of those. Yeah, just a couple. <laughs> it's not, despite taking place at the Vatican. Uh, it's a really fascinating film about people and and expectations. And I think especially if you are an artist yourself, you're going to get a lot from this. Nice. So I actually strongly recommend the, the agony and the ecstasy, which prefers to the refers to the whole process of being an artist. Sure. Yeah. Laboring over something and then being elated once it's finished. And in various other aspects of it, yes. Awesome. Yeah, very good. Unfortunately no real extras, but what are you gonna do? Well, from there, we're going to talk about what was probably going to go down as the weirdest movie of the week, and that is The Visitor, which is the latest from Draft House. Fi- what the fuck is this movie? Uh, you know who 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 is the one from Draft House Films who who actually demanded this go onto their line, right? Uh, I'm gonna guess it was Zach. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> who, who insists, and this is a classic to the degree in which that he has written a long pamphlet that goes with this. Uh, have you, did you read it? I didn't actually read it. But, I didn't get a chance to read just it. just defending why this is a, a great film. I was trying to put the pieces of my face back together after I watched this movie. I don't know how anyone sane can call this a great film. <laughs> it's certainly interesting. It, it will reel you in and then knock you into next week. Um, yeah, this was, it came out in 1979 and, uh, it's essentially a attempt by an Italian studio, at least as what it was originally kind of sold as, to do a cheap knockoff that crossed Close, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Damien Omen 2 together into one film. That was the original thought. They did not realize that their uh, their writer and uh, director were crazy people. <laughs> Which they should have. Uh, and wanted to make something much more ambitious that made very little sense. Let me put it this way. It starts yeah, I'm with like... John Huston <sighs> as uh, alien slash angel. It's never really clear who's in heaven slash other planet talking who goes to talk to Jesus Christ, played by Franco fucking Nero uh, in a wig, who is teaching a bunch of bald children in this this sermon about basically God and Satan, except couched in a sort of sci-fi metaphor. I just, I'm having fun listening to you re- relay the plot to people. Well, it's just like, wait, that's, you're like, what the fuck is this going, what is going on in this movie? Uh, there's weird hallucinations. John Huston has to come to Earth to find this girl that apparently is the descendant of, uh, what's his name, Satine or something yes. like that. It was like, come on, just say Satan, Satan. already, all right? Uh, and is... Being as one of those people who's genetically, she's got the right mix. So she's got his powers, and she's going to turn evil and turn the, evil. Well, she is evil, and she's gonna, evil from frame one. She's going to take over the world. Her mom's a little naive, a <laughs> little bit. She's dating Lance Hendrickson, who seems like who wants to marry her, but of course Lance is working for a company that wants the rise of Satine and knows exactly who the little girl is. And apparently, to make this work, uh, the mother, who is the perfect genetic choice, has to have another kid to compete complete some sort of there's got to be a girl and a boy i guess for this apocalypse thing to happen. just because and she doesn't want to have another kid she doesn't want to get married she's being boy what a stupid feminist jesus well <laughs> I, there's just a, there's a lot about this movie that doesn't make any fucking sense like so much this is like the closest i can give you to a plot yeah this. no no you, you did well i there's so many parts which is like birds attacking people and there's a scene where like a, a little girl throws 
Like, she unwraps one of her birthday gifts and it's a gun. She's like, hey, look at this, and throws it across the room and ends up shooting her mother in the spine and paralyzing her. But when her mother gets home from the hospital, she's just like, oh, hey, sweetie. It's like, really? We're not going to discipline the child at all for paralyzing mom or, or just ma- maybe mention that, hey, that was not so good an idea? There's so much. Who gave her the gun? In the I was never uh-huh. clear on where the gun even came from. It's It's unclear. There's it's unclear. so much that's unclear. Like, for instance, why does the original poster have like an, a giant eyeball with lightning coming off of it and claws? There is nothing in this movie <laughs> that vaguely resembles that image in any way, shape, or form. Why does a little girl give a shit about the outcome of a basketball game so much as she's willing to, I shit you not, make a backboard explode when the opposing player is going up for the winning shot? What the fuck happened there? What and then, did it have to do with that? And then no one, no one addresses the fact that a backboard board just exploded well, you know what they were saying is that sports and all people who like sports are from the devil that's that not what i understood that so. that's i think that's a reach are you sure i'm pretty sure damn it i mean kareem abdul jabbar <laughs> don't have that much reach man come on <laughs> but who they, is in this film by the way was he in the film he is uncredited in his film i don't uh this actually has a decent cast. Like I said, it's got Mel Ferrer. Uh, Glenn Ford is in this. John Huston is one of the great actor-directors. Sam Peckinpah plays a small role in here. Yeah, what the fuck? Why? But why did they take this movie? It's, they it's, couldn't have understood the script. It's such an oddity. It's just such a... Man, this movie... Somebody sat down and wrote this. Somebody else pitched it to a studio or a production company that agreed, yeah, we should make this movie. And then everybody in it, as they're, you know, as they're acting in it, kept going. Like, nobody just gave up halfway through and went, you know what, this movie's ridiculous. I'm not doing this anymore. It's just, it's such, there is a story behind this that I want to know. There is, there is a lengthy tome about how this movie came together and who was responsible for, I want to know this story. This movie is not good, but I want to know the fucking story behind it. Well, it's such an unbelievable mess. That it doesn't, re- and it doesn't resemble any other kind of mess. True. There's no other film that's really like, th- that fucks up in the way that the visitor fucks up. It's like going to a gallery and seeing a garbage statue that you've never seen before. Yeah, that is true. Um, I, I, I want to recommend it on that level. Oh, Shelly Winters in this too. I forgot oh, yeah. that. Uh, whose character, you're like, wait, what is her, is she working for the angels? Is she working for the devil? What's happening here? She's a bitch either way. Uh, there actually are some really interesting extras on here. One is a interview with a uh, screenwriter, Luke Kumichi, who says that he was hired because they needed a writer who spoke English and Italian. So he could act uh, as a translator between him and the, the actual writer for the film. Uh, and basically he got involved as a, a pawn in the battle about what this film was going to be. It's actually a really fascinating interview. There's an interview with a cinematographer, but the best part is the interview with Lance Henriksen, who gives the only interview I've ever seen attached to a film where he flat out is like, look, this is a piece of shit. I don't know. I've never seen any. He's like, says, I told you I was not going to lie. This film sucks. <laughs> it's really funny interview with him for about yeah. nine minutes where he just goes on and on about like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's funny is that this is one of the few Blu-rays that still has an Easter egg. Really? There's a small snippet of that interview with Henriksen that I don't believe is in the the actual special feature version. That if you click on the Draft House Films logo on the main menu, it like it just pops up and he says a couple words. Oh, and it's like, oh, well, that was interesting. I, I'm not familiar with a lot of companies that still do Easter eggs. Yeah, so. I didn't. I didn't know that was on here. So there is that. This is yeah. Just this is a movie you kind of just have to see to believe. That's all I'm going to say about it. I can't really recommend it one way or the other because I honestly don't 
know how I feel about this movie. Like yeah. it was so befuddling that I'm not even sure I arrived at any conclusion. It's about kind it. of like a Zardoz level type of yes. film where you're like, I can totally understand someone who's fascinated and enjoys this film based on the just sheer madness of the fucking thing. Like, mm-hmm. how did this even get made? Yeah, it's so weird. Uh, but. It, you, it's a long cry from that to actually calling it a quality film. Yeah, which, no, absolutely. Which anyone who did needs to have their head examined. It is another in the canon of just flat-out bizarre 70s sci-fi. Yeah. And on that level, enjoy. Yeah. Moving on from The Visitor, we're going to spend the last days on Mars. Do we have to? Or we, I mean, no, we can pick another planet, I guess. Okay, the last days. I just don't want it to be the planet from wherever that director, the visitor, is from. (laughs) No, Uh, actually, last days on Mars is a 2013 back to present day uh, sci-fi thriller, which is is basically bragging that it's got Liam Schreiber, which I didn't realize was that big a deal, but apparently he's going (laughs) to be a bigger star. Uh, Like he's plastered all over the cover. Look, it's Liam Schreiber. Liam Schreiber, the Liam Schreiber. He's been in movies I have seen the posters for. He's in that show no one can remember, but everybody likes. I've seen him on some direct to DVD movies before. <laughs> uh, where it's it's the crew who's on Mars. It's the, their last days on Mars because what they do is they'll send a rocket down. The last and day he's on Mars. They'll send a rocket down and the old crew gets on the rocket to go back home. And the new crew goes on and goes to the, the pre-established station that's there. They've got like maybe 48 hours left on the planet when they actually discover a life form on the planet, which is just microscopic, but pretty big fucking deal. Unfortunately, this leads almost immediately to the guy who discovered it dying in a, in a collapse, uh, on the planet and him coming back as a space zombie. Yes, that's right. This film that feels for the first 30, 40 minutes of it, like it's actually going to be a hard sci-fi type of film. And I was enjoying quite a bit on that level turns into just another (laughs) zombie movie. Oh boy. Oh yay. I know I can see enjoying it regardless, but there is a point that when the movies are actually tricking you into not no realize into watching another zombie movie like look there's a billion fucking zombie movie choices right now please don't lie to me about you being a zombie you know movie. what i call that what do you zombie nice yeah it's true <laughs> uh and it's well done for what it is it's got a good cast uh elias Coteus, uh, uh uh tom cullen olivia williams you know, like I said, it's a it's a decent enough cast for it. It is all like sort of like B list actors, if you will, but good B list actors. Sure. And it's well put together. It's just not really offering a lot that feels terribly new. It feels like it's a remake of a some sixties or fifties sci-fi film that someone is trying to treat with a plum. The visitor. <laughs> no, not oh. that one. But you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like like that Mario Bava one. Oh, right. Uh, Planet of the Vampires. Yeah. Like yeah. somebody's like taking that. It's like, well, if we, if you actually look at it at its core, there's actually a good story here. Not really. <laughs> if you really look at Planet of the Vampires at its core, uh, the X-Men uniforms came out of it. I mean, that's, that's, that's obvious. But other than that, I got nothing for you. It's another one of those ones. It's like, okay. If you set up real or early enough the fact that everybody's infected, then you already know how the movie's going to end. Yeah, you know, not well. I, I just, I, I hate it when, uh, you know, zombie films do that right from the beginning and go like, oh yeah, by the way, we're all infected. Okay. So why am I just coming? We all know what's going to happen then. Yeah. So why it's hard to root for anybody at that point. Because they know you have to put something on in the background sometimes. I, the only thing you can root for is one of this guys makes it back to earth and the whole earth gets infected and then you get the walking dead television series. So yeah. 
<laughs> that would be that would be you know what that that's going to be the inevitable end of that story is that they find out it came from space. But like I said, it's not a bad movie. I'm just like. Please, I already have the zombie films I like set up. <laughs> you know, I have things with zombies I very much enjoy. You really don't need to trick me to watch another one. And I don't <laughs> think that, like, this film that was actually has a decent budget and, like, a very convincing space stuff, I felt was a little betrayed by just turning into yet another zombie film. And zombies who were strangely smart when they needed to be all of a sudden. You know, mm. they'd be, like, really, really dumb. And then when the plot called for it, they'd be like, oh, wait, I know how to do make this. I know how to uh, set and plant explosives. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. That's not. No. Yeah. That That's unacceptable. Agreed. Anyway. Uh, all right. Well, that's the last we're going to talk about the last days on Mars. And now yeah. cold comes the night, which sounds like an Edgar Allan Poe story. Oh, sounds like a like a 70s like Credence song or something. <laughs> <laughs> also that. But this is actually a film from 2013 that stars Brian Cranston as a criminal. As a Russian criminal. As a Russian criminal. He is in a hurry to get everywhere. <laughs> oh, wait, no, you mean actually from Russia. No, I mean from Russia. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah, no, this is this is a movie that kind of flew under the radar. I remember uh, as part of my job over at Movie Pilot, I had to report on the trailer at one point. I was like, man, I'm, I'm excited to see this when it comes out in theaters, which it did not. Which it never so when I heard the Blu-rays coming, I was like, okay, I'm excited to see this. And I got to say, if I had seen this movie at a film festival, this is exactly the type of movie at a film festival. I'm like, yes, awesome. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought there were uh, parts of it that were excellent. I thought there were some things that were pretty lacking. But overall, I really like this movie. Well, it's a little slice of Southern Gothic, which there's a lot of that going on these days. Just inner... Inter Southern Minsk Gothic. And, and yeah, interjecting like this Russian character here. And there's a lot of aspects to this film that actually are... Pretty darn entertaining. It didn't quite come together for me exactly how it did for you, but I, I, I you know, at the end, it's kind of like, eh, okay. I'm not upset. Nothing in this film upsets me or makes me go, ah, uh, it's just, okay. Yeah, there's it, some weaker choices made at the it, end. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. It's, it's a, a thriller that keeps you entertained, mainly through the relationship of Brian Cranston, of course, is wonderful and everything and can do no wrong. <laughs> and, uh, I'll Alice, hail the wonderful Cranston. And, and the very sexy Alice Eve, who is playing a single mom living with her daughter, Sophia, that operates a motel. She's being given shit by, the social worker says, look, you cannot live in a motel. They're fucking, you're letting hookers do their jobs at this hotel, you know, and drug yeah. deals. You can't, you have like 30 days to get the fuck out of here, basically. Yeah. She doesn't know what to do, but, uh, she ends up in a situa, in a situation where basically Cranston comes along, his assistant gets in some shit and gets killed, killed and gets killed by and kills a hooker and the police take the vehicle away, which has something inside it. That's worth a whole hell of a lot of money to Cranston. Cranston basically kidnaps Alice Eve and says, look, you are going to get me the shit back from this truck, or I'm going to do something terrible to your daughter. Alice Eve is not, and this is where the strongest point of this film is. She is not your shrieking. Oh God, help me. Where's a man when I need one type person. She's no. a survivor. Yeah. And basically it turns to him. It's like, well, I need some money too. So I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get it back and we're going to split it essentially. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a really interesting choice. I love Cranston in this. He's so like, you know, you, you think about where he ended up at the end of breaking bad as like full on Heisenberg. This is that plus a Russian accent. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he is he is just calculating. He is no nonsense, and he has he has lost the ability to basically get 
uh, get flapped by anything. I'd say he's he's relatively unflappable. He is indeed. He will never be a bird. He will never be a bird. But you know, and I like I like the way that the story ends up. I like I thought the cinematography was really good. I it thought was gorgeous. The looking. shot composition and the, and the the shot choices were really good. I mean. Overall, this is a really strong movie that I think is just flying under the radar because it didn't get a theatrical release. And yeah, I, I did. I thought there were some weaker choices made with the ending, but overall, I really liked the movie. So I, I guess it was for me. It was it's a very well made film that just doesn't quite reach what it's what it's grasping for. It's not quite as powerful as it wants to be. It's more of a, it feels more like a, a really good HBO movie that you see than it does something that would ever have gotten a theatrical release where you're like, oh, that was fun. I like that. But if you had seen the theater, you would have been like, okay, it was all right. There's a lot of movies like that coming out right now. And this was not one of the better ones. Like I said, there's nothing specifically wrong with it. There's just nothing that to me felt particularly great about it either. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that's, that's fair. I, I, I still think it's one that if you are a Brian Cranston fan, if you're a big fan of Breaking Bad, it's one you should check out. Because it's almost like this alternate timeline where Heisenberg went to Russia for a while and then has come back as just a full-on criminal. <laughs> now we need Aaron Paul racing through the parking lot in a high-performance car. Just doing donuts and screaming bitch out the window. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, from there... <laughs> the need for uh, medical speed. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So from there, we're going to talk about Iron Sky, the dictator's cut. Oh, God. They, you, you really hate this movie, I don't you? I fucking loathe this movie so I much. I fun with Iron Sky. Good, because you're doing the, this review. So. See, I think I had the opposite opinion everybody else did going into this, because everybody I knew was so excited by this trailer. Like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's going to be so good. Nazis on the moon. And I was like, really? Because this looks like shit to me. <laughs> I don't know what why everyone's so excited. There's so many movies like this. Why is this going to be any good? And I felt like everybody had super high expectations, and then they got another sci-fi channel movie, and we were like, what? That sucks. Well, I, to be <laughs> fair, I think the problem was the trailer was selling a completely <laughs> different movie in tone and in almost in genre yeah. than the movie that we actually actually got now that being said if that were the case i could have forgiven it but I, my ultimate problem with the movie is that what it ended up being it didn't do very well well you're right i have no business telling you how you felt or you didn't no no no. i'm sure. just saying i'm just but, putting it out there. but for me like i said as far as those sci-fi channel type movies go this is one of the better ones i thought i actually really enjoyed the hell out of this stupid movie <laughs> <laughs> with uh, uh, basically an American in 2018 uh, uh, landing on the moon, discovering that there is uh, that there are Nazis hiding on the far side of the moon, and then uh, uh, basically the black guy, who the black astronaut, ends up being taken captive. He's like a unicorn, Cyril. <laughs> And this Fourth Reich that's there has been so far removed from the original, you know the Nazi thing that most of them don't even really know what the Nazi thing is. Like they really, they don't know that there was a Holocaust. They don't know about any of that stuff. Like they're just like, okay, we're just this civilization that was like kicked off the planet by evil people. And now we have to build up our resources to return. Right. And I really enjoyed with him sort of like kind of black exploitationing his way into the heart of a white scientist on the, on the planet, white hot, hot chick scientist. I was like, this is actually pretty fucking funny. That did happen. <laughs> I don't know. I had fun with this. It's so goofy and weird. And yeah, it's a bad movie, but it's one of those, like, it knows it's bad. Usually that's not a, a good thing. Yes, we're intentionally bad, but sometimes it works. I mean, we both know sometimes it works. This is one of those ones that works for me. Uh, now, this new version of this comes in a, a pretty impressive metal case, like really nice steel box case. 
Uh, and it's what they call the dictator's cut. And it is indeed 20 minutes longer than the first. The director's actually issued statements saying this is, this is the version I really wish everybody had seen the first time. I don't know if that's def- saying, yes, I know the first cut wasn't great or what. I have not gotten a chance to watch this longer cut, but I do intend on it. Cause like I said, I myself had fun with this. It actually comes with a booklet and some extra, some bonus, other bonus features along the way. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm glad I have this. Well, good. <laughs> I, uh, you can't have it. You can't. I'm glad I have this. I do. No, I am. I'm just, I'm glad I got it. I was like, I didn't even ask for it. I didn't even know it existed. It just showed up. I was like, oh, really? An Iron Sky director's cut? But I don't know. They're making a, a prequel to it right now, you realize. Good God. Yep. Seriously? I'm going to force you to watch it. Nope. Nope. Oh, come on. Nope. Not happening. Yeah, you're going to love it. I'll probably watch it. Yeah, you will. Yeah. Anyway, that was Iron Sky, the dick faces cut, and uh, we're going to move... Seek hell! <laughs> we're going to move on from there to something else that shouldn't exist. Old boy! Oh, boy. Old oh boy. Uh, this is, of course, Spike Lee's remake of the Park Chan-wook film in the Revenge Trilogy. Let's just start off by saying this was indeed a complete theatrical bomb. It, it was. And the thing is, like, I am not somebody who's dead set against remakes. I don't by by you know by the numbers hate them i think that there have been some that have actually been really cool and and if it weren't for remakes we would not have john carpenter's the thing we would not have uh the Fl- david cronenberg's the fly like remakes are there is merit there sure if they try to do thing one different from the original or if they are approached with uh, a level of autourism as long as they're not cranked out just so that you can put the same name on the poster. And boy, does this feel like a cranked out version. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the only person I give any credit to really here at all is Josh Brolin, who at least is trying. And he's trying hard to do a good performance in this thing. I feel like if you're somebody you didn't know this is a remake, you'd never seen the original one, which is probably true for a lot of people. And you watch this, you go, wow, this is a really bad movie with a, actually a pretty cool story. Yes. I, why didn't they make a good movie out of this? And that's what's a shame is that, like, it's still got that core story. It's a really good story. But it's so silly here. Charlto Copley playing the main villain here, the one who set up the whole thing that traps Josh Brolin in a room for how long is it? Like 20 years or something like that? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. He's... He's just so ridiculously over the top. It's like he's he ate Vincent Price's brain before he went into this and then and then crossed it with Marty Feldman. It's, oh boy. It's just such a terrible performance. Um Elizabeth Olsen is okay, but even she they don't really give her a lot of strong material here. A lot of the problems, Spike Lee has no idea how to film an action scene, and this depends on a few action sequences. Do you remember that that, that one static awful. shot in Old Boy with the hammer and it's just like one unbroken fight scene. It's really incredible. Yeah, it's important that you do that well. Yeah, that's a key scene that really brings home like how fucked up this guy really is by what happened to him and how how much he wants his revenge. Right. You know, he's an anti-hero at this point, certainly, and that has to hit home for this film to work. Here, it's a such a poorly filmed scene that you regularly throughout it see punches not connecting, just every sort of thing you're not... That The whole goal of filming an action scene is to make it look like... not look like that. Right, exactly. <laughs> this is how not to shoot an action scene. 
Yeah, it's just a lot of that sort of like, okay, there's 12 guys attacking him. So one guy attacks him while the other guys hang back until he beats that guy. And then one at a time, they come up and attack. It's like an 80s ninja movie. Exactly. You're like going, um, you can't really get away with that anymore. I don't know. This is just, it's, it's really kind of a wreck. It was incredibly arrogant of Spike Lee to even want to do this in the first place, if you ask with me. With absolutely no vision. With no vision. There is nothing it. about this movie that's, you know, I watched this and I'm like, why did you think you had to make this? Yeah. What, what was the burning desire to not even, I'm not even going to assume that he was trying to improve upon Park Chan-wook, but what was the burning desire to do your own iteration of what Park Chan-wook is? What were you trying to bring to this story, bring to the table that was at all different or interesting? I'm sorry, but the guy's just an asshole He's now. a total fucking asshole. Did you asshole. see his responses to the guy who, like, uh, who, who can prove that he was having his art ripped off by the people who were producing art for this? Yes. Like, his response was like saying, why should I pay someone who I never met nor ever had any contact ever? He may never need, never had any deal with me. Why don't you pay me for your stupid text on Thanksgiving Day? Which is response to, to an Instagram thing. Yeah, right? keep and in you're mind. Going, because you were in head of, uh, charge of this operation, and if you gave a shit about anybody but your Yourself, you'd go look into it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you got to remember, Spike Lee is also the guy that gave out um, uh, who was the the Trayvon Martin shooter, George Zimmerman. He gave out George Zimmerman's address via Twitter to kind of incite people to go like get revenge on him. Problem is, he gave out some old couple's address. Actually, it wasn't George Zimmerman's at all, and they were harassed for many, many weeks. So, thanks, Spike Lee, for being once again a giant cockbag. Yep, pretty much. Wow, a cockbag. He's huh? a cockbag. He's a, a bag thing. of cocks. Now I'm trying to picture a cockbag, and I'm very sad for that. I'm very sad that you're trying to picture that. Uh, for those who've never seen Old Boy, and please, please take your time to go watch the original Korean film because yeah. it truly is great. In fact, you can get all three of the trilogy of uh, the Vengeance trilogy. Vengeance trilogy. Uh, by this director, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy, and Sympathy for Lady Vengeance in one set that is just so great. Watch that. Don't watch this, but the plot is basically the same, that this alcoholic douche uh, named Joe, played by uh, Josh Brolin, uh, he wakes up after a drunken night in a hotel room, old-style hotel room, finds out that he's a prisoner, uh, all the basic hygiene is there, a bottle of liquor is provided for him every day if he wants it, but... And he's a mess. He, he's a complete wreck. He's a dick. He's he's had a shitty life. And he even looks at the TV in there that he's been framed for the rape and murder of his ex-wife uh, and that his daughter, Mia, has been adopted. So he spends decades sitting in this room trying to figure, well, what the fuck am I in here for? What am I supposed to do? And one day he's released and not even sure why. <laughs> it's just like, wait, why back. am I out? Now, he thinks maybe that's the end of it. He wants to reconnect with his daughter and, and, and say, like, he wants to find out who did this, but he has no idea where to go from. But it turns out the guy in question who did this to him, his plans for him aren't even close to being over yet. Yeah, it's it, it unfolds and it's nastier and nastier. It goes, goes along this old this unfolding plot. But again, it's just why wouldn't you just watch the original? Like, I can't think of one reason why I would. I would opt to watch this instead of the original. There have been recent remakes that I think are almost as good, if not just as good as the original, uh, mm -hmm. like of, with foreign film ad adaptations. There have been several that I was like, wow, that was actually, I was surprised that I, I, I thought I would hate this and it's actually pretty good. Like, I'll, I'll like even uh, throw... the one with the vampires from uh, Sweden. Um, oh, uh, Let the Right One In, yeah. Let Me In. Yeah, yeah Let yeah. Me In was good, a really good remake. It didn't try to do much, the original didn't, so it's not a necessary remake, but... You but it, it does actually do a couple of things, a couple of, it makes a couple of major changes that at least make, it begs the question of certain aspects of the story, 
And that's at least something. Yeah, and it adds that one really cool shot with the, the car accident. Yes. It's amazing. Absolutely. And <laughs> it's like, I'll even go to bat for the Friday the 13th remake. Because even the Friday the 13th, 13th remake makes Jason scary again and actually combines three movies worth of origin story into one film, which is really interesting to the watch. The only thing I'll say in defense of that is one of the Winchester brothers is in it. So there you go. I'll watch it for that again. <laughs> there you go. That's at least <laughs> something. That's what I'm saying. There's nothing about this old boy that you're like... I want to watch the remake because... I can't think of any good reason. Like I said, I like Josh Brolin as much as the next guy. And yeah, it's a good performance by him in it. But it's not like the sort of like, you won't believe Josh Brolin in this movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> you won't believe Josh Brolin said yes to this movie. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm sure on paper it seemed like a great idea. But maybe some no one told him that Spike Lee hasn't been relevant for a really long time. True that. Moving on from there. <laughs> it's funny how we say that. And then we're moving on to The Grandmaster. <laughs> Wait, why is that? Because it's like somebody who hasn't been relevant for a long time, and now, instead, we're going to talk about someone who is a grandmaster. Who has been dead for a long time. Well, there's, there you have it. This is the latest uh, Hong Kong documentary, or not documentary, but film about the life of Ip Man. Of Ip course, Man. there was very successful uh, two films with Donnie Yen playing the role. There was one recent, recently that was more less action, more documentary, not documentary, but more his life with Anthony Wong that I liked quite a bit. And this one is the art film version. No big surprise. It's from film master Wong Kar Wai, who's considered to be one of the greatest directors ever to come out of Hong Kong. In the Mood for but, Love, My Blueberry Nights. But a lot of people who like Angels. martial arts films aren't even familiar with them because that is definitely not his oeuvre, generally yeah. speaking. It's not his milieu. And this is his attempt to sort of... <sighs> bring visually an understanding of different types of martial arts and what they mean to the screen. And I don't think, I think this was lost on a lot of people who saw this, who, who didn't understand why they were filming it the way they were. I got it. I can still see why it's not for everyone, but I thought it was absolutely fascinating the way it actually follows his camera follows the tiniest of movements and imbues meaning into them, into these elaborate martial arts fights that do indeed permeate this film. It's not what I would call your standard action film by any, any stretch of the imagination. No, it's not. Uh, it, to it man, by the way, is the guy who, one of the, the, the masters for Bruce Lee early on. True. And this is kind of an explanation of like how Bruce Lee even came to exist. This guy who was taking a form that you really weren't allowed to teach outside of your, I mean, you weren't. You weren't allowed to teach outside of a school. It was very selective with groups of students. You certainly weren't allowed to openly teach it to just whoever. And Bruce Lee broke all those rules. Yeah. Uh, but well, he, yeah, Bruce Lee was teaching things to Westerners that was like strictly for – it was like you're teaching this to people who aren't Chinese. What the hell are you thinking? And this is kind of the evolution of one all that uh, – ideology was first starting to break apart yeah. in Hong Kong following uh, Ip Man and his mastery of, I believe it was Wing Chun uh, and dealing with other grandmasters and battling with them and lots of cool historical stuff and really beautiful visual action scenes in the rain and Zhang Zi being a total badass. <laughs> I really liked this movie a lot, but I feel like it was kind of mismarketed a bit, perhaps. Well, yeah, I think that was ultimately my biggest problem with the movie is I felt like it was very, very arty. And I thought it was, you know, one of these like a uh, cinematographer's showcase. But yeah. overall, I just didn't think it worked much as a martial arts film, not philosophically, but just in the execution of the actual fight sequences, which you have to remember that. You know, my, my introduction cinematically to Itman was Donnie Yen, and that movie is incredible for its action well, sequences. Well, that's a, that's a fast and furious, no reference to the other movies, but yeah. you know, just 
fast-moving action film. And not no to question. say that it, it's without its artistic flair. Sure. It's just, it's way more focused on the construction of the actual action sequences. Like I said, the goal here was to make an art, arty film. That was, this is more akin to something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yes. Not in the sense that it's a lot of wire work, but that, like, really being it's beautiful poetic. and poetic and artistic yeah. is really the goal. And even making the martial arts themselves, which is quite a lot of in here be expressive in that sense. True. Uh, and I thought that he does some, of the, it's one of the first times I've seen someone do something truly and completely new with martial arts cinematography in a really long time. Yeah. And, and again, like I can't really, it's not a huge fault. I'm not faulting the movie. I'm just sure. saying that it, you know, it you didn't into, work for me. Yeah. No. And I can understand that. I've had actually several conversations with other people who felt the exact same way you did. I feel like I had read, I was so excited about this movie and I read so much about it beforehand. I got exactly what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as I'm a huge fan of the guy playing Ip Man here, Tony Leung, who's one of the greatest actors to come out of Hong Kong. True story. I, I did thoroughly enjoy this, but like I said, I think at some point you're going to want to manage your expectations. It's a very long film. And even then it's cut down significantly and there'll be points you're like this is like doing like a, a highlights reel from his life it like skips through like a decade at one point like oh and then this shit happened okay next well he says something in the movie about life being seasoned so it kind of jumps from season to season which is really a long period of time because he's like if if life were if life were made of seasons then the first 30 years of my life were spring and i'm like the really 30 years is only a fourth of your life I didn't realize you lived that long, it's Itma. Asians, man. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they don't crack, but there's nothing that rhymes appropriately. So, uh, Now, there's actually a lot of really amazing supplements on here. Uh, there's four of them. Oh, and they go deep into what, if you're interested in this period of history and you're interested in the meaning of all these martial arts, it gets deep, deep into it, especially uh, a seven-part feature in Chinese with English subtitles called The Grandmaster Behind the Scenes that gets... Like, I mean, just starts talking about the, the specifics of all these different type of martial arts and what they meant and like all the fighting styles and just really, really great. There's a conversation with Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon Lee, where she talks about his history with Ip Man, uh, and his heritage, the film's depiction of martial arts, uh, the, 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 belief that, and that people were upset at Bruce Lee over giving away like information about martial arts, stuff like that. There's a, uh, another look uh, from Ip Man to Bruce Lee, where it takes a look at the cast crew, martial arts, filmmakers, film critics, and lots of others where they, they talk about the Ip Man, Bruce Lee relationship. And then there's the grandmaster, according to the RZA, <laughs> oh, <laughs> who of RZA. course had to show up and offer his two cents. Oh, RZA. Yeah. I love you. Well, well he was a producer, so, you know, you got to give him a, Motherfucker, I'm going to be on this. You're not going to put me in the movie? I'm going to be on the bonus features. In, indeed. Wu-Tang Clan, indeed, ain't nothing to fuck with. In the house. In, in so much. So that was the Grandmaster. Now we're going to move on to big history. I don't know. What, what does that mean? That means, like, history. It took a while. That... No, it doesn't what? mean that. All right, Is so, it like Mount Rushmore? No, there's this... All right, so there's this idea of, like, that's been going on uh, with... And science and history now are called big history. And the idea is that we learn much, much more if we look at history not as a straight line, but sort of like a, a, a much bigger macro map and the way that all these things, little things have affected all these different worlds. Like, you know, like each episode of the show narrated by Brian Cranston that hey, hey, hey. took place on H2, uh, takes a look at, you know, something that seems small on the outside and then, uh, shows how it ended up affecting like just huge amounts of stuff both in science, on social structure, on just, you know, from when it first was 
made its debut in human origin to, or even the origins of the universe, which it starts from, it goes a cosmological to present day. And it actually is pretty fascinating the way you think of things like salt and like, there's an episode just about salt and you're like, really salt? It's like, yeah, none of us would be here. Like the whole planet wouldn't be here probably without salt. It's like the whole history of human civilization is indebted to salt. Which well, House it, Harkonnen would which, certainly be nowhere without well, it. Which at one point was more valuable than gold. Yep. That's you know, true. Uh, I mean, it was necessary. You look at like our road system is is based on paths that led both to salt and to water sources. You know, most of our cities are based on places that are near a major salt source and a water source. Stuff like that. There's horses thing, and there's thing about gold. There's a thing about uh, gravity. Just and it is kind of interesting, but it suffers from the thing every single History Channel show does. Aliens. No. No? Okay. No. Although that would probably be accurate. The the ghost of John Adams. <laughs> no, not that either. Um, it suffers from being aware that its audience has ADD and they might be flipping channels. Hmm? Exactly. What? Where you're watching, I'm watching it on Blu-ray. Do you really need to lead in with the five minutes from each segment that just explains what the last segments had to say? I'm like, will you please fucking stop doing that? Previously on Big History, we we looked at, yes, I know, it was two seconds ago for me. <laughs> yeah, for something that's on History Channel, you don't have any faith in my ability to recollect recent history. I, it's really maddening. Oh, everything on the History Channel doesn't. It drives me up the fucking wall. <laughs> and this is one of those, like, you could, like, each one of these half-hour episodes would be probably about 12 minutes long if they just cut out all that extra bullshit. As well as, like, you know, like, oh, we filmed this one CG sequence for this episode, and we're going to show it 40 times. Uh, <laughs> Drives me up the wall. But there is some interesting stuff in here, and it's very much a layman's look at the idea of big history. But it's a nice intro into this concept that is sort of making the rounds even somewhat controversially right now in the more studious sects of society. Right on. Well, yeah, the, I I can't remember what you were talking about, but I know it had something to do with history. So. Previously on this discussion of big history. Oh, big history. That's what we were talking about. Thank you. Uh, so that was big history, and now we're going to be in fear of our next title. What's our next title? In fear. Yes, I know you said that, but what's the next title? In 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 fear. Damn it, Brian! <laughs> Are you having a stroke? Yes. Sargus <laughs> Barber. No, our next title is in fact called In Fear. It's a 2013 horror film that does something kind of interesting with horror. It's an I Irish thought. horror film. I I was I mean one of the weird things about this is it it stars a uh, Ian D. Castecker. You're like who the fuck is that? He's the nerdy guy on Agents of Shield. There you go. <laughs> I was like, wait. And he's kind of playing a guy with an anger problem here, which does not seem like the same guy. You're like, wait, he's so convincingly a little, like, sweater vest wearing nerd on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And here he's like, you know, don't give that guy any alcohol. <laughs> uh, but he's out on a date with Alice Englert, who uh, also has had, like, a lot of recent success. She was in Ginger and Rosa and then played the lead in Beautiful Creatures which was a slightly better than average young adult adaptation. Uh, yes, I would agree. And they're on their first trip for a as a couple where they're going to go to a music festival, and he's gotten them a date at a secluded hotel way out in the countryside. They're driving out there, and unfortunately, the, you know, it's a rainy, crappy night, and the signs... Because it's Ireland. It's Ireland. It's every night. It's a rainy, crappy night. Or I, that's what I've been told by some Irish people, so you can't put that on me. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
And the signs start leading them around in circles. They're like, fuck, this is bullshit. And they're just frustrated until it's clear that someone is actually fucking with them out there. Now, what makes this frightening for me is I have been on a number of like, hey, let's just drive and see what we find road trips where we got completely fucking lost and going around in circles and weird sort of rednecky places. And it is truly scary. Yeah. And the idea that someone might be out there actually fucking with you is pretty cool. Like, not cool in real life, cool in a movie. <laughs> it's odd to see a movie where you've got, like, yeah, a stalker here who is not some big Jason or Michael Myers. He's just a dick. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of a dick bag. Uh, you know, a psycho dick, but basically just a dick. And I like the way this played out. It actually, there's, we watch the stress rise between the couple. We start wondering who is this person? Why are they doing it? Why does it tie back to a conversation they keep happening about what happened back at the pub? Right. It's not what, this isn't a game changer in horror, but it is, I think, a, a nice little look at what is coming, seems to be coming next. Which I actually, is horror that is realistic. Yeah. I actually thought it was kind of mundane up until the third act. And then the third act, the twists, that happened in the third act. I was like, okay, that was pretty impressive. So I, I definitely enjoyed where this movie ended up going. I just, I think I liked, I related more to it because like I said, it was like, it was, whereas people always go, I, I generally in the past I've gone, I prefer supernatural horror. I find that scarier because I don't really find most of the non-supernatural films realistic. Like Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's hard for me to identify, you know, with that. It just doesn't seem like something that happens. I don't know. Well. I've been to East Texas. But this stuff like this is like, and like the home invasion movies that are, that have become somewhat popular in recent years, those seem a little more plausible. You're like, oh, okay, this is actually reality frightening. And right. I, 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 on that level, the way this slowly, but still did build up, it actually was getting to me. Like I said, I don't think it's a masterpiece or anything, but certainly a thing that like people are, are going to want to keep an eye on this kind of horror. We haven't had a great one of this type of genre yet, but I have a feeling it's on the way. I don't know. I, I feel like this is the same kind of horror, and what you're talking about is kind of the same thing as you got in a movie like A Horrible Way to Die. Yeah, where I it was count that the same type of thing. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like you're right. I feel like there there are people making these, and we should be on the lookout for more of them. Yeah. <laughs> that is the thing that you should do. That is the thing you should do. But so much for that blue. So much for that blue. We're going to move on to a dark house. Dark house in dark the house. middle of our dark woods. <laughs> uh, okay, speaking of child molesters, wait, were we speaking of child molesters? We weren't, but uh, luckily uh, Victor Silva came into the uh, Victor Salva came into the discussion because he's always salivating when your kids come around. Man, that is wow. Okay, he is not a good dude, but that woof, that he, was kind of. I mean, he did pay for his crimes, right? Uh, I don't know. Didn't he do I, prison time? I don't know the whole story. I just know that he's kind of a reprehensible guy. and uh, He made the Jeepers Creepers movies. And he, and in fact, it gives me the Jeepers and the Creepers to watch his movies now, knowing like... And you look at his picture, like, wow, he even looks like a child molester. He looks like fucking um, John Wayne Gacy, he, for God's sake. He, really he looks exactly like John Wayne Gacy. Give me a break, man. <laughs> Come on. Did they, like, I, I almost think that's a gag on Wikipedia that they just used John Wayne Gacy's picture. Well, there was a lot of controversy. And, like, he did Powder was probably his first really well-known film. And, uh, and then people were like, wait, what? That guy... Is it child 
molester? Well, yeah, and then they found out what was going on on one of his first movies, Clown House, and it was like, oh, gross. Uh, but then he came out, he got kind of well-known from doing the Jeepers Creepers films, which obviously had their own following. I never really could get into the Jeepers Creepers movies. I thought they had cool... I liked the first one. It had cool stuff a- around it, but the actual like play out of what happened was like, eh, kind of pedestrian, I thought. Uh, the idea of this guy who's basically a Lovecraft monster was cool, but then they never really did anything cool with him, I thought. Yeah. Just for me, anyway. Um, But this is his, now that nobody gives a shit about him again, uh, attempt to make a largely direct-to-DVD horror film originally called Haunted. And now given a much more generic title. (laughs) Like, Haunted wasn't generic (laughs) enough, so it's like, what's Haunted? The Dark House? Let's call it that. Yeah, it's like, like, so you have to change the name from Haunted. You're like, okay, well, what else is like... Had a billion movies named it already. Dark House. <laughs> uh, it tells the story of Nick DeSanto, played by Luke Kintank. Klein Klein Tank. That's yeah. a. You should be mad at your parents. <laughs> um, <laughs> who uh, apparently has the ability to touch someone and see exactly how they'll die. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Worst mutant ability ever. Yeah, well, ask Christopher Walken about that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, although he could wouldn't just see that, to be fair. He also saw all this. Yeah, but it's pretty obvious where they're getting that idea fair, from. Yeah, fair enough. Well, this is, let's just be clear, this film, everything in it is borrowed from something else. True story. Um, uh, but he is summoned by his mother, played briefly by Leslie Ann Down, to an asylum where she's been institutionalized since he was a kid, who... Basically, she tells him, look, your father is really alive and uh, might know where this origin of your gift comes from. He finds out that he, when his mother dies almost immediately after in a random fire in the asylum, after talking to a mysterious voice that comes from the greats. A backboard explodes just as she's going up for the winning shot. Yeah. (laughs) It's the people under the stairs, Brian. What is happening? (laughs) I have lost the thread of this show. And uh, he finds out, like, in her stuff, there was, like, a lease to an old house. And he goes out to where this old house is supposed to be. He's like, wow, I've been drawing this house since I was a kid. I didn't even know it was real. And they're like, oh, that house isn't real anymore. It used to be there, but a flood washed it away, and it's gone. Like, oh, unless you believe the urban myths, which the house washed away, sure, but it still stands intact, and it's cursed or some shit. Or some shit. (laughs) Uh, And he ends up meeting up with uh he goes out there with his pregnant girlfriend and meets up with a couple road surveyors yeah <laughs> including yeah, they... the guy from children of the corn zach ward oh zach ward who was scott farkas in the uh, christmas story yeah he's actually um friends with michelle williams i don't know if you've met her or not I... uh, black girl used to be on the real oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. she real nice girl she used to bring zach around our parties <laughs> really? Yeah. She, oh man. In my, in my old house, he came to a party there. I met I met Zach Ward once at Fantastic Fest, and it was so surreal. I was like, "You're you're little Scotty Fargus." <laughs> uh, and they go and they find this house, and uh, who's in it? Well, it's Jigsaw Tobin Bell, who looks like I don't know. He looks like John Constantine gone to pot. He looks like this role was written for Lance Henriksen, and then Lance Henriksen was unavailable, so they just gave Lance Henriksen's wig to Tobin Bell. And he's this axe-wielding leader of a bunch of axe-wielding freaks. They look like monsters from Return to Oz. They do. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and they warn the kids away, killing one of them on the way horribly. Uh, but it, 
apparently reality itself starts bending around them where they, they can't leave wherever they go. They end up back at the house and they're forced to, in fact, hole up in the house while the ax wielding guys surrounded outside and the deeper mystery lurks. Who is Nick? Where did he get these powers? And what does his father have to do with the mysterious voice coming from the floorboards? Well, the question is actually relatively obvious answered uh, by the film, but I will say this as much as this borrows so heavily from everything, I had a fun time watching it anyway. It's mm. so goofy and it's Super so like, goofy. what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> it's just like crazy. And then it's got this plot twist halfway through like, aha, everything is exactly the opposite of what you thought it was. Which is actually the, the, the part that I probably liked the most was the turn. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's laughable, but fun laughable, like yeah. laughing with it really. Yeah. And uh, I like some of the, the act stuff, but other than that, I was just like, the fuck is this movie? It was one of those, it was one of those that like, they just kind of threw everything but the, well, there actually there was a kitchen sink in here. So they may have hurled the kitchen, the kitchen sink. sink at it. And it ended up being just so kind of silly. It was fun. Yeah. I actually had a good time with this. It's not a good or scary horror film by any stretch of the imagination, but kind of falls under the, it, it feels like a legion or something like that, you know, but mm. more fun because they had less to work with. Man, I don't know. I like legion a lot on that level, on the level that you're exactly describing about this film. I feel like that's we're landing on opposite sides of the fence because I, I mean, I enjoyed elements of this movie, but not enough to make me forgive all of the wanton silliness of, of the, uh, of the picture. Ah, oh, you'll be wanting some silliness, silliness ah. after you see this. <laughs> What country are you from? I don't know. That was like six accents merged into one. <laughs> that was an accentident. It is the mega accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get beyond that flub and beyond outrage, in fact. I'm. What is beyond outrage, anyway? You're like, I'm outraged. And now I'm beyond I'm, outraged. I'm outraged. Is Furious above outraged? I don't know. I'd have to get out the little card that tells me what beats what in poker and what beats what in rage euchre. I find it very confusing. <laughs> uh, this is the latest film, the middle film in a now announced to be trilogy of Japanese Yakuza movies by the great Takeshi Kitano. Beat Takeshi. Uh, yeah. Whenever he's acting, he has himself called Beat Takeshi. Uh, he's the beat poet of violence. He's kind of the Clint Eastwood of Japan, really, in many ways. And in his later years, he's become less interested in stuff being as graphic and as, as immediate in its violence as he was, and more about sort of the psychology of violence. And certainly, if you guys listen back to, what, about a year ago, I guess, when we reviewed Outrage, you probably can't listen back to it now. Yeah, it's gone. That. But um, thanks a lot, Hollywood.com. <laughs> uh but we loved Outrage. In fact, we even gave away a copy of it. We loved it so much to, to fans. Sorry, we don't have a giveaway for Beyond Outrage. Mm, don't be so sure about that. Oh, do we? Just not this week. Oh, okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but this follows right where that left off, although admittedly, it's... It's been a couple years. We see, uh, that the, at the ending, from the end of the last one, uh, Beat Takeshi's character, um, Otomo has survived the attack. We see placed on him at the end of the last movie and has managed to keep his head down in jail. But now a, very arrogant and Machiavellian police inspector is agreeing to let him out and wants him to be part of his whole plan to sort of manipulate all the different warring Yakuza clans. I was a little confused as to exactly what his end goal was. Well, it, it's funny. It's not terribly dissimilar in plot from The Raid 2, where it's like, 
I, I want to, I basically, but it's like, it's like on opposite ends of that same plot. It's like, I want to get you out of jail so that you can take down people that I feel are corrupt versus in the raid two. Now that you've survived that, I want to put you into jail to take down a bunch of corrupt people. I'm not people. even sure he was trying to take down corrupt people. I felt more he was trying to insinuate himself into a, the power structure where like he would be the top cop that they oh, that owe allegiance to. That too. You know, uh, cause there's a lot of corrupt cops here. In fact, his, the police chief's, that police guy's own assistant is this guy's constantly looking at him like, what the fuck, man? You're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's yeah. really, that's the funniest part of this movie. It's like every time the one cop does everything, anything, they shoot, switch the shot of the other cop just looking at him like, wow, just dickishness abounds <laughs> yeah and and i gotta say this about beyond outrage versus outrage if outrage had violence that bordered on like horror movie level he's fucking jigsaw in this movie like the violence is like wow like he he does things in this movie gets really creative with it though and i think that's what keeps it from being like bogged down in um like exploitative tawdriness i think there's still there's still art at work here, but throughout the whole movie, like, he is finding creative and sometimes even funny ways to, to dispatch people. And a lot of it, there's there's parts that are even done off screen by, like, these, like, wraiths that he controls. Like, these Yakuza wraiths that really give him, like, a force of nature kind of quality. And I was just like, man, he is not fucking around in this movie. I'm saying death by batting machine. Yes. Oh, my God. The batting cage death is so good. That's, that's something I admit. I can't believe I've never seen that anywhere before. Like, really? No one's done that before now? Yeah. Someone must have done that before now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there are some creative just, but it's not even really the focus of this thing. No, it's not at all. But I should say, if you liked Beyond Outrageous Violence, this is like, oh, or if you liked Outrageous Violence, this is like next level shit. Uh, you know, I feel like the, in in, the actual individual acts are even that much gorier, but there's less of them. Yeah, that's that's outrage. true. Because mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, like I said, this is the middle chapter of a series here, and we're seeing uh, Atomo, who initially seems to want to have nothing to do with all this, end up being just out Machiavellian everyone who's trying to manipulate him and his situation in a very entertaining and brilliant way. Uh, yeah, and it's it's one of those movies that is going to demand your undivided attention. Yeah, you can't – there's a lot of plot going on here and you yeah. cannot be drinking heavily while you're watching. It's not no. a watch with your buddies film. No, no, no. And it's funny. I believe in my original review I put that there's a, a rhythm to the story construction – and the song that plays on loop is called Meetings and Schemes, Meetings and Schemes. Because <laughs> yeah. that's all this movie's just a bunch of meetings and then schemes and then murders. Yeah, it's meeting, scheme, murder. Meeting, <laughs> scheme, murder. Follow in three, four time. time. Yeah, in three, four time. But very, very good. Uh, excellent uh, follow-up. Like I said, a little slower than the original one, but still very good. Um, there's not a lot of recent great Yakuza films, but this is definitely one of them. Definitely, yeah. I, I really like Beyond Outrage. And it's funny, like, you always assume that sequels are going to be inferior to the original. And I felt like this was just uh, – it wasn't inferior. It was just sort of a, a, a – a, uh, what's the word I'm looking – like an extrapolation of everything that we had seen in the first one. and really expanded it out. And, and man, I, I was actually kind of blown away by how – Again, I'm going to come back to cinematography, but like even in the first one, I feel like the focus wasn't so much on cinematography, and in this one, they really step it up. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And it's it's, it's a lot like watching. Have you ever seen Kinji uh, Fukasaku's The Yakuza Papers, where every one of those chapters ends with like just this massive bloodletting. I feel like every chapter in this trilogy is going to be like the Yakuza paper. And I have a feeling by the end of the series, everyone will be dead. Yes, much like Game of Thrones. 
Um, and you're not going to want to watch this by itself. You're going to want to watch Outrage first. It really is a direct continuation of that story. And you're going to be a little confused if you're watching it all on its own. Even I had been like over a year since I watched Outrage and I had to go back and read the plot synopsis, synopsis of Outrage. Like 15 minutes into this, I was like, all right, I had to put it on pause and get on Wikipedia. I just hope that this movie leads, to, <coughs> leads, inspires the inception of a new sport called Beatball. <laughs> where you tie people to a chair and see how many balls it takes to hit them before they die? Yes. That's a sport. Beatball, yeah. You frightened me, Brian. <laughs> well, moving on from Beyond Outrage, why don't we talk about Pig? Pig. Pig. Hey, Pig. Yeah, you. You came direct out to DVD, and I don't think that's cool. Is this a song I should know? You don't listen to Nine Inch Nails? Eh, not enough to know Pig. You should. Anyway, this is actually a 2011 festival hit uh, that I, – I guess you'll like the, the main guy, Rudolph Martin. I was like, I, where do I know that guy from? See, one of those guys, you, you like, you've seen him in lots of shit, but nothing really stuck. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, oh, it's that guy. He's one of that guy, guys. Uh but he's really the main star here in this film that doesn't seem like it's going to be sci-fi, but eventually is, where he wakes up alone in the middle of the desert with a black hood on his head and his hands tied behind his back. No idea why, how he got there, who he is, or anything except for a little slip of his pocket, a paper in his pocket with the name Manny Elder written on it. He manages to free his hands and wanders across the desert till he's discovered by a woman who lives alone in a house there, nurses him back to health. They end up starting a relationship, but he's like, look, I need to figure out who I am. This is ridiculous. I have this piece of paper. We got to figure out information. And it leaves them on an elaborate chase that's punctuated by strange sequences where he wakes up again in the desert and a different thing happens to him rather than that. That'll say like 1.4, 1.5, 1.6 every time it's a different one, even though the story will then flash back to wherever the last one left off. You're like, when the fuck is going on here? <laughs> As it goes along, he meets a, a a German woman who knows him, who he's surprised when she speaks German to him. And he's like, wait a minute. Why can I understand you? How come I can speak fluent German? Who the fuck am I? That's, that's a little you're, confusing. You're Adolf Hitler. You're Adolf Hitler. This is the Boys of Brazil remake. <gasps> no, it's not. It's not. Um, this is actually really good and intriguing Twilight zone type sci-fi uh, like film until – it gets to the end, and rather than showing you, like, this is what the answer is, they tell you by switching to basically a documentary that explains everything in the plot that makes all of this make sense. And you go, wait, really? Because if you have to do that, if you have to manufacture a little science documentary that shows, like, oh, yeah, and now that like, answers all your questions, then you haven't really made a movie. Yeah. You, you've really made, like, three quarters of a movie and then added the cliff notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that extremely disappointing. I mean, it's a really good idea, and I'm sure there was a way to organically make it explain everything, but th- that was not it. I don't want to say what it is because it's still, I mean, it is a good concept. It's a neat idea. It's just so such a poor way to execute the end of the third act that I was just like, damn, guys, y'all really, you could have had something here. That's, that's, yeah, I'm still not understanding. So there's a documentary at the end that explains. I can't explain it without blowing the the twist. I guess, I guess I'll have to to watch and see what this weird twist is. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cool sci-fi idea. It really genuinely is, but 
like I said, it's it's just I feel like if they had found a way to write it out where it hap- all happened organically, mm-hmm. they would have attracted big stars to the script. They would have okay. gone like, wow, this is a nice vehicle. This is a cool movie vehicle. It's something like Inception or something. Uh, and they just it's an unfinished script. It's an unfinished idea. So oh. sad thing. That's like it's like a half. It's a half done pig. It's a half baked pig. Yeah, it's half baked. That's too bad. Undercooked meat is very dangerous. Yes. Don't get trichinosis from yeah. this film. And that brings us to our last title of the day, which is also going to be our giveaway. And this week, it's 12 Years a Slave. Wait, are you saying we're giving away slaves? No, I'm not saying I that. that's what you're saying. We're giving away Blu-ray copies of 12 Years a Slave. I don't need to get the angry letters. Call the police. No. <laughs> so 12 Years a Slave, you may know, is that film that cleaned up at the Oscars this year. Uh, it is directed by Steve McQueen, who also did Shame. And uh, it's a story of uh, Solomon uh, Northrup, who was uh, – right before the Civil War, he was a, a free He was a free man living in the North who was kidnapped and taken to the South where he was sold into slavery. Even though he was a uh, – you know, he lived freely in the North, he was sold into slavery and for 12 years just struggled to survive and get noticed to somebody like, hey, I've, I've been abducted. Can someone please – Rescue me and show these people that I have papers, that I'm free. Uh, it's a very harrowing story, and uh, McQueen really tells it with... He doesn't pull any punches when he tells the story, for sure. And it's it's just... It's a really kind of gut-wrenching tale, but ultimately... I like that scene when all the slaves are walking back to the bunkhouse and they're whistling... I don't think that happens. I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> is that is that that's not the Steve McQueen movie we're doing? No, about? that's the other Steve McQueen movie about great and escapes and being a different person. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> one of the great things about Twelve Years a Slave is just the the myriad great performances going on here. You have Chuetel Ago Four uh, as Solomon Northrup. You have um, you have uh, Michael Fassbender, who is a longtime uh, Steve McQueen collaborator, playing just one of the most heinous human beings you will ever yeah. see on if, film. If the Oscars had had a Best Villain Award like the MTV Music Movie Awards did, he would have taken it. Definitely, definitely for sure. And then, of course, uh, in the, the Best Supporting Actress, or was it just Best Actress? I can't remember what... Best Supporting Actress. It was Best Supporting Actress. Uh, oh, my God. Lupita gonna... Nyong'o. Yeah, I was like, I was going to butcher her name. As far as I'm concerned, is Storm in the X-Men movies. I, I agree. And, and then, of course, caster. Benedict Cumberbatch is in the movie, uh, not, not in a huge chunk of the movie, but I like... I like this character a lot as sort of this he's a slave owner but he's he's sort of a sympathetic character as well man he he made some people I know more infuriated than Michael Fassbender's character though because huh. he kind of represents that sort of like uh, you know I'm not I'm not an asshole but you know it's a system you can't deny this is a system that works right type guys which is like that's the, the banality of evil type it, it's of evil. a different type of collaborator yeah uh, and then you have the only rival for Michael Fassbender's best villain of the year and Paul Dano or Sarah Paulson who's or kind Sa- of a con herself there's so many assholes in this movie yeah uh, but I mean even people like Paul Giamatti show up Brad Pitt has an extremely small role in the Scoot film Scoot McNary who insists on being in every film from now on and being unrecognizable in it I still don't know what that guy I looks like I don't know like. what he looks like yeah no clue <laughs> <laughs> so he's been in like every movie I've seen this year, and he's, I couldn't tell you what he he's going like. to end up being the new Gary Oldman. Like, right? There was that period where nobody knew what Gary Oldman looked like. But he like. was still in everything. Yes, he was. Yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, just a tremendous film. Uh, I really was was taken by the story and as uh, the story of a person who's taken. And you know, the, the score was really brilliant. The performances were all amazing and spellbinding. I mean, this is a really great film from start to finish. And it's not a, a, God. I, it makes me so mad when I listen to people saying, "I'm not going to watch that." I'm just some film's going to try and make me feel guilty about slavery. First off, you're a terrible person for even thinking something like that in the first place. I mean, you you know. It did happen. It's important. You can't forget history, right? You know, right. I mean, like, what, are you not going to watch uh, Schindler's List? Because, oh, I'm not just going to feel guilty about the Holocaust. Look, you're a shallow human being. End of story. And also, if you weren't a Nazi, I'm not sure what you're feeling guilty about. <laughs> I just, you know, it's like, there is, you should watch dramas. Yeah. Just don't be a fucking child. The other thing is, it's not just one of those movies. It's yeah. actually quite the incredible acting and directing piece this is steve mcqueen's best film i think by a sizable margin and there are some moments in here that just as a relationship between him and chiwetel ejiofor a director actor relationship they achieve some truly astonishing things on film together and i'm so glad that chiwetel ejiofor is starting to get even more notice i mean this guy he's been great since day one i mean you go back and looking at him in movies like children of men yeah or stephen fear's dirty pretty things or hell even the the firefly movie what he's mean, really good even at. the firefly movie well i was gonna say that was the best one okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> that got awkward quickly. especially the firefly yes, movie. especially the firefly movie serenity is what I to say. serenity surrender the to that best argument. movie ever <laughs> Well, we're giving away copies of 12 Years. So we actually have two Blu-ray copies to give away. And the way we're going to do that, as you may know, we've been doing sort of writing prompts on Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do is make sure you're following at one of us net on Twitter. Because if you win, we will contact you by direct message. So that's how we know if you're following us. So make sure that you do that. And then this week, I think we're going to do what we did last week because we really uh, we appreciated the the outpouring of support, and we would like to get a few more Twitter followers. So basically, what you're going to do is you don't even have to tweet at us; just tweet out to your followers, "Hey, I really love oneofus.net," or "Here's why you should be listening to oneofus.net," or something to that effect. This is the best thing about oneofus.net. Yes. And uh, this is why I would have sex with Brian if he was in the room right there, now. There you go. You I'm can... not saying that because we're clearly not having sex. And we're clearly not even in the same room. No. Um, but yeah, you, you just tweet something to that fashion, something telling people that they should follow one of us.net or they should check out the website. And then I want you to hashtag it be one of the us. So the hashtag is be one of the us. So that is, and then we'll use that hashtag. Uh, to search and see who's tweeted that, and we'll pick a couple people randomly, and they will win copies of 12 Years a Slave on Blu-ray. As well you should. As well you should. I wish you all could win a copy so you can watch it and stop being little bitches. I wish we had 12 copies to give away. That would be so fitting. Wouldn't that be perfect? Yeah. Fucking company. I know. They're only generous enough to give us two, and we're complaining. We're the worst. We're spoiled children. Bitches, leave. Well, that's going to do it for Digital Noise this week. I want to thank everybody for listening. Sorry for our absence last week, but South by Southwest was kicking our ass. And now that that's over, we have a lot of new and, and, and exciting things coming up that will probably kick our ass as well. It never ends, It Brian. never ends. It never ends. We, Can you hear me right now? Do you hear my voice? That's yeah. that's pain. That's it's degradation. Pain. It is. That's things human beings aren't supposed to do to themselves. Right. This website is a cruel mistress, and I wish we had established a safe word before we started. But <laughs> Which is why you should become a subscriber. Become a subscriber to oneofus.net and click on the Amazon links and follow us on Twitter. You can follow at DigiNoiseCast or you can follow us on individually. I'm at Brian. Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And yeah, so so go ahead and do that and go ahead and try to win a copy of 12 Years a Slave. And until next time, I just want to remind you, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. 